Hey folks, and welcome to Typology, the show on which we explore the story of you through the lens of the Enneagram. My name is Anthony Skinner, your co-host. Thrilled to have you here with us today, and I couldn't be more excited about this interview that we just finished talking about our special guest, Andy and Sandra Stanley, good friends. Andy, of course, is the founder of the Atlanta-based North Point Ministries, amazing church there. They have a network of over 180 churches. He has an amazing podcast, Your Move with Andy Stanley. He does so many wonderful things and leadership, and they have written a brand new book, Andy and Sandra, on parenting. It's called Parenting, Getting It Right, and I'm telling you, both Ian and I wish we'd had this book when we'd started our families. We cover so many amazing topics today that I know you're going to be really enriched by hearing this interview. So that's it for me, Anthony Skinner. I could go on and on about this, but let's get to the interview. And now here is our host, Ian Crum. Andy and Sandra Stanley, Double Enneagram, One Spouses and Parents, and authors of the new book, Parenting, Getting It Right. Welcome to Typology. Thank you for having us. Yeah, Ian, it's good to see you again. It's been a while since uh, we've chatted, so this will be fun. Yeah, man, I've been really looking forward to this, particularly because I've read the book, Parenting, Getting It Right, and I have a million questions for you, and I am positive that a lot of our listeners are going to be sitting on the edge of their seat wondering, can Andy and Sandra help me get it right? All right. So <laughs> we've never had double ones on the show. That yeah. So I am so jazzed. <laughs> never before. Yeah. It's an interesting dynamic. Yes. Well, we're going to find out. Sandra, I don't know you. This is our first time being face-to-face, I want to know, how did you discover the Enneagram? And if it has, how has knowing your type affected your marriage and especially your parenting? Yeah, well, our daughter got interested in the Enneagram first. And so hearing her talk about it kind of sparked some interest in me to learn a little bit more about it. And I am such a systematic person. So anything that smacks of systems or, you know, or, sorting, num- or, or sorting things out, I'm a number person. So I just loved it. I loved the idea about it, you know, from the start. So then of course, just, you know, read what you wrote, read, read back to you, listened to all the things that Allie was talking about. And then we all took the test. And I remember the first time I took the test, we had some combination of our kids in the car and we were having, of course, an Enneagram conversation and I pulled up the test on my phone and, you know, paid, I don't remember how much it was, but paid it. I thought I want to know, and I want to know now. So I took the test while we were driving and I do remember. Not while she was driving. I was in the passenger seat. (laughs) (laughs) While we were driving on vacation. That's what what fours do. (laughs) No, ones follow the rules. Ones pull (laughs) over, fours do it at the same time. (laughs) But I also did not want input because I'm a rule follower and I knew that I needed to do this test on my own. And so, you know, everybody, I would read a question out loud every now and then, because just out of out of, am I understanding this question correctly? And then they all wanted to give me their answers for me. I'm like, no, 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 no. I am taking this test. So long story short, I, to answer your question about helpfulness, 
it is so helpful yeah. in marriage and in parenting yeah. to mm. know and understand enneagram numbers. It just takes some words off the table that you wouldn't know, you know, that you might have used with a certain child that now you realize that's probably not going to be an effective yeah. mode of communication for this particular child. So, super helpful. Very. And can you mm. tell our listeners what wing you both have, if you know? I think I'm a nine wing because I, you know, just that whole kind of peacemaker type of thing. And I'm not a nine wing. No, Andy is not, but I don't really see him being a two either. So I don't know. I, your input on that would be interesting. Well, yeah. So for your audience, and I think I've told the story before, the way I met Ian is I announced to a group of about 2000 church leaders that I was a five and I was headed out to the car. And I hear this voice behind me, Andy, Andy. And I turn around and he goes, hey, I'm Ian Cron. I'm like, oh, man, you wrote the book. He said, you're not a five, you're a one. Then he just turned around and went back inside. Now, I'm not kidding. I'm like, oh, okay. Well, but I'm let me one. tell you, I had diagnosed him as a five. Um, well, so had Allie. And the reason I did Allie and was- I, we just, and went, again, because Allie introduced us to this, whatever she said. Oh, we just went with it. We just went with it. But the reason I was convinced maybe he was a five was because of the idea that a five, and correct me because it's been a while since I've read all the things. He will. He will correct you. You know, a five having a certain amount of emotional capacity or, you know, capacity for change, quick change. Andy has zero capacity for a quick change. And his emotional capacity is all allocated for the following day. So if you Mm. throw something different at him... He's like, I can't do that. I'm like, but it's like not even that big of a deal. But in his mind, you know, it's all it's all assigned. And so anyway, that was I don't know if I explained that well, but that was why I thought he was a five. But Hmm. I just went with what Ian said, even in spite of what (laughs) Allie said. So so as you can imagine, our house looks like our house looks like no one lives here. That's how you know we're both ones. It looks like we're sh- it looks like we're trying to sell it, and we've got everything you know, so somebody could walk through and want to buy our house. So there's a place for everything. Yeah, and everything yeah. has oh a place. Gosh. And we do not store anything. We give every anything we don't use. We just give give it away to get it out of the house, so there's no clutter. Yeah, yeah. I drive okay. to the donation place multiple times, which did impact our parenting, as you can imagine. But I don't want to jump ahead. <laughs> Yes. Wow. Well, I mean, there's nothing wrong with your house looking staged for sale. That's completely fine. I wish mine did. It definitely looks like an Enneagram 4 house with strange totems of all the things I have done in my past, strange artwork and the like. But anyhow, you know, I um, I want to jump into this whole topic of parenting too, because obviously, you know, we're living in an age when parenting is super hard. Right. I just read a study about anxiety and depression among kids, issues of mental health, which, you know, when I was a kid, I mean, they clearly were issues, but not at the fore like they are today. And so I think this book, Parenting, Getting It Right, is incredibly, incredibly timely. As Enneagram once, it's laid out perfectly uh, (laughs) and in a way that is pithy and to the point. Uh, so I want to just get your thoughts as Enneagram ones about parenting. I want to know, like, what's the goal of parenting in your mind? Well, and again, this is the one in us. So our oldest, Andrew, was in a car seat. We're going on vacation, meeting her family. And so I'm like, we need to set some parenting goals. So we, he was, I don't know how old he was, but he was, yeah, in a, in an infant seat still. And so 
we came up with these three goals that ended up being too many. And eventually it just came down to one thing for us, which is a one. Of course, it would come down to one thing. And we decided, and this was because of something I saw in Sandra's family, honestly. And I tell this story, we tell this story in the book. I saw something in her family that was not in my family of origin. It was so normal to her. She didn't even notice it. But to me, it stood out. And that was her. She has an older brother, a younger brother, older sister. And the five of them always enjoyed being together and looked for opportunities to be together. And whenever that one, whenever four were together and one wasn't there, they would call the one to say, Hey, we miss you. And why aren't you here? And, and we're to having torment them. And to torment them. Yeah. We're having steak and grandmama's cookies. You're missing out. And it really got on my nerves, honestly, early in our marriage. But when we had Andrew, I realized whatever that is, that's what I want for our family. So we determined that the win for us as parents was kids who wanted to be together and wanted to be with us when they no longer had to be. Kids who enjoyed being together and who enjoyed being with us when they no longer had to be. So we immediately, strangely enough, began parenting with adult kids in mind. We didn't think of it in those terms then, but that's what this was. And this really set the trajectory um, for our parenting that it became, we parented with a relationship in mind, current and future relationships. And we stuck with that. And then now that our kids are adults, uh, we thought, well, hey, let's share with the rest of the world what we did, because we think that is the win. But in the book, we make the point, every parent needs to determine their win, because if you don't, Culture and busyness will determine the wind for you. And the whirlwind, as you just pointed out, Ian, the whirlwind of parenting, you know, if you don't keep your eye on some sort of ball, you're just reacting to whatever's coming your way. And it's difficult not to get caught up in that. And we certainly wrestled with that like every other set of parents. But that was early on. We decided that's the win. And honestly, it's because of what I saw in Sandra's family. And I think apart from that, I would have parented toward compliance, obedience, success, mm. you know, all of which are super important. But you can have obedient children who don't want to come home. You can have compliant kids who don't get along with their brothers and sisters. And you can have successful kids who you, once they're gone, they're, they're gone. gone. And we didn't feel like that was the win. No, we didn't. In fact, one of the things that helped us realize that maybe we had gotten there to some degree, at least, was when we started writing this book, a team from our from you know the folks that were publishing it, took our three kids out to dinner, just the three of them without us, and just wanted to talk to them about, hey, tell us about growing up. You know, I don't. We weren't sure if they were trying to decide if we were telling legit, the truth, telling the truth in the book. <laughs> but when that conversation was over, they were finished with dinner. That team left to go home, and our three kids were standing outside the restaurant, kind of saying goodbye to each other, and they just decided. And each of the three of them told us this later, their version of it. They're standing there and they decided they were not ready to part ways yet, that this was such a unique time for the three of them to be together without us and without their spouses, that they'd walk down the street to another cafe and had dessert together. They just wanted to still kind of hang on to this moment of just the three of us talking, laughing, you know, all the things. And so as they told us that individually, You know, a parent's heart, when you realize your children choose each other, they're not just tolerating each other. There's a joy that brings it, I think, is unmatched to almost anything else. And we felt like there is a little microcosm of the win of the, you know, wanting to be together, even when you don't have to be anymore. You know, I'm so glad to hear that because I have three children. Kale is 31. Maddie's 28. Aiden is 25. And my kids love to be with each other. And they are very competitive. 
they are wise guys, right? And so when they're home, I have to put the cornhole game out in the backyard. I have to do, I have to set up <laughs> games in every room because they just want to play all compete. day long. Yeah. Oh my gosh. And yeah. there is yeah. a great deal of laughter in our house. And we have regular family meetings, especially when something has gone sideways. And we just bring everybody together and have a truth telling session. Like we just, we got to talk about this and none of them have ever hammer hawed and said, well, I'm not going to do that. It's like, nope, we got to come together. Yeah. And I guess, I don't think I had that in mind uh, when I was parenting, but I'm glad that was an outcome for us. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and, it, and I think you would agree that at this stage with the age of your kids, if you don't have that, I think it's almost impossible to get it. Mm -hmm. You did something to parent toward that. But once they hit, you know, late 20s, early 30s, if that's not there, I'm not sure how you get it then. I could be wrong, but it's a, it's the, it's a reward. It's an outcome of years and years of doing some things right. So congratulations. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. Well, thank you for that. I am, we're interviewing this guy, Bob Waldinger, later this morning. And I don't know if you guys know about his new book, The Good Life. He is the Harvard psychiatrist who wrote a book based on the 70-year longitudinal study that Harvard did on literally trying to answer the question, what makes a good life? Like, what makes people happy, meaningful? I mean, they did 70 years of study, okay? And he concluded it. And here's what it came down to. Kind of made me giggle. He said, relationships are the key to a meaningful Life. So fulfilling relationships is what determines, you know, a wonderful life. And I, you've mentioned this in the book in a, in a way, because you talk about relational success as being really important, teaching kids relational success. I want you to unpack that for folks. Well, life is relationships. And gosh, to the point of that book, you do get to the end. And, you know, I think sometimes when we think about legacy, we think about accomplishments or, you know, that kind of thing. And the truth is, you know, at the end of the day, our legacy is the relationships, the health of the relationships and the healthy people and the relationships we leave behind. And so for us, parenting with that bullseye on the target, that idea of we want kids who want to be with us and with each other when they no longer have to be, parenting with that meant we were parenting with the future relationships in mind, as Andy mentioned earlier. And so as it relates to the nuts and bolts of parenting, that actually informs a lot of the decision-making. It informs decisions that you make for your calendar, what goes on the calendar, what doesn't go on the calendar. It informs decisions you're going to make as it relates to discipline of your children. So, And what you discipline for. And what you discipline for. Yeah. When our kids were really little, we disciplined for the three Ds, disobedience, dishonesty, and disrespect. Those were the three things. Children are going to be childish because children are childish. That's, you know, that's who they are and what they are. And you make corrections along the way with that. You kind of coach them through those things. And But as far as discipline, it was disobedience, dishonesty, and disrespect. And the reason is we wanted them to begin understanding early that on the other side of any of those three offenses is a person and a relationship. Yep. And so we really wanted our kids to understand when I am disrespectful, it hurts a relationship. When I'm disobedient, it's going to hurt a relationship. It could be that it's going to hurt themselves, but it's going to hurt a relationship when I am dishonoring to someone or, you know, or dishonest, certainly it's going to hurt a relationship. So we wanted to lay a foundation for our kids early of understanding that 
life is relationships. And we wanted also to help them understand how to restore a broken relationship. So Mm. when it came to figuring out, you know, punishment versus discipline, we picked discipline every time. We wanted them to understand long-term, not just short-term, this is how you restore a broken relationship. Life is relationships. And to the other point of your question, and it's so important, and this is, and and we do spend a lot of time on this in the book, even right up front, because this, as you were talking, I just watched an interview with him about this book. I knew something about that ring a bell. And our children, again, just fast forwarding, our children, to the point of his research, our children will not be happy if they do not know how to maintain long-term relationships. So if you want your children to be happy, you don't try to make them happy. The way to ensure your children will be happy long-term is to teach them relational skills. And one of the most important ones, the one that Sandra just mentioned, is how to restore a broken relationship. Because all of us know adults who a relationship was broken, like even with a parent or a brother, a sister, a cousin, someone at work, and they don't know how to fix it. They're just like paralyzed. And you hear their story and you think, well, just call him or just go. But the art of restoring a broken relationship. So in the book... We give several examples, but two in particular, one when our kids were young and one when our son was a teenager to talk about how do you discipline your children toward relational restitution and restoration? Because that's the goal of discipline, not punishment. And so consequently, in our home, we rarely just took things away. Because taking things away doesn't restore a relationship. It just takes things away and it doesn't teach our kids anything other than be more careful next time so you don't get caught. So, again, this was the trajectory of all of our parenting. And again, to the point of this research, our kids will never be happier than their relationships are healthy. And that begins in the home. Mm, Yep. I love that. What I guess if I were to encapsulate that in some kind of a pithy phrase, I would use the phrase... (laughs) It's all about relationships, not rules. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Because, and again, I know Sandra just said this, connecting the dots between the rules and the person impacted on the other side of that rule is so important because this is true in society. It's the reason we have speed limits. It's the reason we have traffic laws. It's the reason we have, I mean, the laws of society are designed, hopefully, to protect other people from us and to protect us from other people. So- on the other side of every broken rule is a broken heart. And the earlier we can, this is why we only had two overarching rules in our home. And one of them was never tell a lie. And the reason we told our children, you never tell a lie was not because of the 10 commandments and not because the Bible says so you never tell a lie because lying breaks a relationship. And I don't want you to break a relationship with me. So one of the skills that or one of the um, parenting skills we talk about is when I thought, that my kids were going to be tempted to lie to me when I asked them a question, I would actually do this. I would say, hey, Andrew, I need to ask you something. And you may be tempted to lie to me about this because if I were you, I might be tempted to lie. And I hope you won't lie to me because lying is going to break our relationship. And then I would ask the question to give Mm. them space to contemplate what's at stake. What's at stake isn't the issue we're about to talk about. What's at stake is our relationship. So, we again because this was on the forefront of us it we really did work hard to incorporate it into every aspect of our parenting yep oh that's wonderful now Beautiful. tell me what your Allie was what was she a 3 she's a 3 yep yes okay 
oh my gosh, 60 years old. And I remembered that. Okay. So Allie's a that three. Great. What about, I know. What about Andrew? What's Andrew? So we're not sure. He's a mystery. He's a, he's our mystery child. Garrett, our middle son is a seven for sure. So we've got a three and a seven and then a. Maybe a five. May, yeah, maybe a five. He's got some one tendencies also. But you know what was so interesting as double ones, parenting our three and whatever Andrew is, was a lot easier than our seven. Because for two ones, when you're parenting a seven, it's kind of like, okay, sit down. Okay, stop. Okay, don't do that. Why are you doing that? You know, stop, you know, calm down. Yeah, we wish we had the Enneagram as a tool or a filter much earlier. We have apologized to our seven over so many times. and over because we kept trying to one him yeah. instead of, you know, instead and, of letting him he, just be and he, seven and he seven. laughs. In fact, he, he told us because we kept we keep bringing this up even as, you know, recently. And he finally told Sandra. Yeah, he me told me one day. So, you know, in, in probably my 12th time of apologizing for parenting from double ones, he finally said, you know, mom, it really is OK. He said, I have met some extreme sevens. And I don't really like them. So if you toned me down somehow, I appreciate it. <laughs> wow. That is, so that was just kind of, he let us off the hook. Yeah. Well, that's pretty good. And I hear two good parenting principles there. Actually, one that I have practiced regularly, but again, not with the intentionality of a one. You know, it was maybe more intuitive that I needed to do it. But one of the things I tell parents based on my own experience is don't be afraid to apologize and make amends to your children. And a lot of times parents are either too proud or too frightened that if their parents, they see their parents vulnerable that, Mm -hmm. you know, or wrong, that things aren't going to end well. And I have this beautiful daughter, Maddie, she's a nine, and she went through a very rough period. And guess what? We didn't get it 100% right. We just didn't. And years afterwards, when she was a young adult, We were sitting on the front lawn of our home, and this came up, and it became a very tender conversation. And I said to Maddie, it's just sort of one of those moments of inspiration. I said, you know, Maddie, a day may come when I'm not here, and you're going to be angry with me. And I said, I want you to know I get it, and that's okay. And I want you to know if I'm not here to tell you that I'm sorry. And I have to tell you, it was maybe top three parenting moments It was a great deal of just, you know, when two people kind of melt into each other in a moment like that. Mm -hmm, And mm -hmm. um, so I just would commend to parents this practice of having humility to say, I didn't get it all right. But man, just know I wish I had. Well, if I could unpack that moment for a second, because to double down for the parents who are listening, humility is life to a relationship, Yes. period. Humility and trust, and they go together. You cannot, I don't know if you can't, if this is for sure true, but it would be hard to overdose a relationship with humility. And the mm. fear that a parent has of, oh no, if I admit I'm wrong. No, if you admit you're wrong, you are modeling one of the healthiest things for a relationship. So if we want our children to be happy, they have to be relationally successful. To be relationally successful, you have to infuse relationships with humility. So what you did in that moment intentionally, because you're, you were being intentional, is you were modeling how to keep the doors wide open right. in a relationship 
where it would have been easier to close the doors because there had been misunderstanding or conflict in the past. And so for the parent who feels like, oh, if I let down my guard, if I show my humanity or if I show that I'm wrong, my kids are going to lose respect for me. Or try to leverage it. Yeah. Time out. Have you ever lost respect for someone who displayed humility? No. The people we lose respect for are the people who don't display humility, keep the walls up and have to be right all the time. Those are the people that you just don't want to come home once you're gone because it's just too hard because everybody's navigating their ego. So that's a powerful moment. Mm. Wow. Yeah. It's good. I'm dying to ask a couple of questions. You say in your book, you have these tips for influencing your kids. One is never arguing with them, choosing to live with attention, <laughs> and then understanding you don't have the same relationship with your kids as they have with you. Could you unpack those? Yep. Yeah, that that never arguing seems very counterintuitive for mm-hmm. as a parent. Well, and they go together. And I love talking about this. To me, this may be the preeminent insight to keep in mind in parenting. Especially in those older, when you've got yeah, middle older, schoolers and high yes, schoolers. That yeah. we are in a relationship with our children. It is not the same relationship. We are in a relationship with our children. It is not the same relationship. They have a relationship with someone who holds all the cards. We have a relationship with someone who holds none of the cards. That is not the same relationship. And it's easy to remember that when they're very young. But once they are almost as tall as us, and once they have the ability to talk back to us, it's we're tempted, as I say in the book, to stand up and get out of our parenting seat. And once we get out of the parenting seat, everything becomes confusing. It's why you never actually win an argument with your child, even if you're right. When the argument's over, you do not feel like you've won because you get out of your parenting seat. You argue with peers. You don't argue with a child. It's because you, there has to be equality to have a healthy argument. Right. It's, there's no equality between a parent and a child until they're adults. So in the book, we really try to unpack this concept. The easiest way to understand it is if you have employees, you understand that I have a relationship with my employees. It's not the same relationship. I'm the boss. Now, I don't care how friendly we are. We're never going to be friends because there's an inequality of power in that relationship. And so there's the power dynamic in parenting. It's unavoidable. It's a good thing because there's authority with that comes with our power. So keeping that in mind and refusing to unbuckle our seatbelts, especially middle school and high school, to get up out of our parenting seat to somehow you know, begin a relationship that feels more like peers than parenting. It's always a mistake, always results in confusion for the kids and the parents. It's a subtle thing, but I think it's one of the most important things to keep in mind as a parent. Is that a part of what you mean by living with the tension? Yes, because it does create, there's always going to be that tension. And there's something in all of us, especially I think as parents that wants to resolve the tension, resolve the tension. There are tensions that need to be managed. You, you manage attention. You solve a problem. If you try to solve attention, you create a problem. Wow. Now, this is a really broad principle that applies to <laughs> marketplace, business. Every If you solve attention, you create a problem. So there are tensions you live with. For example, everybody listening understands the tension between work and family. I need to be at work. I need to be with my kids. I need to be. That's attention. If you solve it, it means you're either not going to work or you're never going home. So you live and you manage that tension. And in those middle school and high school years, there is an unresolvable tension that is part of building strength and capacity in our kids because tension is what builds strength. 
resolve it or try to resolve it, you take away a dynamic that actually prepares your kids for the future. But I'm telling you, and I, I actually thought about, you know, this was a bad idea. I have many of those. I thought about us titling this book, The Hole in the Wall, because in the first chapter of the book, I tell a story about one of our kids punching a hole in the wall and we never repaired the hole. Though to this day upstairs in the closet, there is a fist size um, hole in the sheetrock in the drywall because I knew in the moment leading up to that moment. And I tell the whole story in the book that I had to remain in my parenting seat, no matter how mad it made my son. I was not going to resolve that tension. It was a necessary part of parenting, and it was a necessary part of what was happening in our relationship. And we never repaired the whole years. Many years go by. We have a a foster daughter. One night, she is so um, mad. She is. I mean, she is mad because I won't change my mind. And she's just going at me, going at me. And I'm not going to argue with her. I don't argue with 16-year-old girls. I just don't. You just don't argue. And finally, I said, come here, let me show you something. So I took her upstairs, turned on the light, opened the closet door, pointed to that hole in the wall. I said, you see that hole in the wall? I said, that is how angry I am willing for you to be. But I am not changing my mind. She just pouted and walked (laughs) off and went to her room. But again, that tension, living in that tension, hey, that's part of parenting. But that's a part of preparing them for their futures as well. And, you know, getting back to the Enneagram, it looks different with different Enneagram yes. number children. Yes. Because if you've got an eight, you know, they're going to want to go toe to toe Over until everything. you have wrestled <laughs> it to the ground and they're not going to be content living in the tension. And they are not yep. going to change their mind yeah. and they're not going to give up, which makes you feel as a parent like you're wrong. I, right. I must be wrong because they're so adamant. Nope. You remain seated. And to your point, Ian, a minute ago, you remain seated You stand your ground, and then if you realize later you were wrong, you initiate that apology and say, you know what? I realize now I was wrong because the win isn't to be right. The win is the relationship, and humility is a component of strong relationships. Wow, you guys. I feel like I wish I'd had this couple – like you, I wish I'd had the Enneagram – 31 years ago. Mm-hmm. And I wish I'd had you as my therapist 31 years ago. It would have saved me a lot of a lot of time and heartache and therapy for, for my children somewhere along the line. So what do you think? Because I have sort of an answer for this myself. What do you think it, the most important thing is that we have to prepare kids for? I think it is future relationships. Yeah, okay. they're not going to be happy. Yeah. yeah. Right. And it's it's marketplace, it's neighbors, it's friends, it's your kids' friends. It's, it's just, their spouses, their future yeah, spouses. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Parents-in-law, fathers, mothers-in-law, navigating all that. Our daughter-in-law, one of our daughters-in-law read the manuscript when we finished it. And her comment to us when she finished reading one of the illustrations about her husband, she said, this explains why he is so good at restoring relationships after we've, you know, had some conflict. Yeah, she brought she said, that this up. Is, this explains why he's so good at that. And we thought, there's the win. Yeah, and, and tell him the story about when Anna, when Oh, Andrew, yeah. So Andrew. when our oldest son was, he and his girlfriend had just were just getting serious. They weren't engaged yet. And Andrew had never been in a real long-term relationship before. He had dated plenty, but not anybody that he ever thought might be the person for him. And so soon after they had gotten pretty serious, she sent me a text 
And she said, I just need to tell you about a conversation Andrew and I had. She said, we had had some conflict and, you know, had worked through it. And she said, I looked at him and I said, Andrew, how are you so good at this when you haven't been in a long-term relationship before? How are you so good at this? And Andrew's answer was, I have watched my dad treat my mom this way my whole life. Which is so true. Andy, I bought myself a trophy. (laughs) 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 And he's the seven, right? No, no. No, he's the one that is the 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 mystery in that illustration. Yeah, this is a different stew. He's a stew of, I don't know. Yeah, he's our our stand up comedian. That's (laughs) what he does for a living. He's stand up comedian. Which you would think would be a seven, but it is not. There are very few professional comedians who are sevens, which is. You know, a whole nother probably it's a, thing for y'all it's to a study. Think, and it's figure a thinker out. thing. Yeah. It's a thinker anyway, thing. Yeah. yeah. But anyway, all that to say to, your, to answer your question, Ian, I think one of the most important things we have to prepare our children for is their future relationships. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And navigating their current relationships. I mean, you know, the current ones, figuring all that out, but their future ones, especially the significant relationships in their lives. Yep. And so much of that is caught, not taught. So. Absolutely. And here's another one. And maybe this is such an Enneagram 4 answer, okay? I think one of the things we have to teach our kids is how to suffer well. How does that land for you guys? Does that feel like a worthy goal in a relationship? Yes, because again, it goes back to suffering is always a tension that in most cases, suffering is unresolvable. But we try to. So this is why people sometimes get hooked on prescription drugs. I just I just got to resolve this. This is why they we develop bad habits. I'm trying to resolve attention. Of course, it doesn't resolve it. It just distracts me from it. And then now I have two problems. I have two different tensions. I got a secret and I got this public tension or relational tension. So modeling for our kids how to do that and to we talk about this in the spiritual formation chapter of our book, inviting our children in on our suffering and our tension and our issues. And I, my dad did this in a tremendous way growing up. When I was in the eighth grade, he went through a very difficult time professionally. And I remember him sitting our family down and explaining everything that he could based on our age, kneeling around our coffee table and praying about this particular issue. And so instead of hiding it from us, oh, it's going to create insecurity financially, just putting it out there and watching my parents navigate that tension. I mean, it really was a defining, not a defining moment. It was a defining season for me. And then many, many, many years later, I face a similar thing. And I just remember, again, it's because tensions You just have to survive them sometimes. And again, you try to resolve it or fix it, you generally create another problem. So inviting Mm -hmm. our kids into that as we do that and then coaching them through. Mm -hmm. And here's how we did it for our kids. We would always come back to this. And I've written a whole book kind of around this idea. We would say, when this is over, one day this is just going to be a story you tell. What story do you want to tell? At some point, all of what's happening right now is in the rearview mirror of your life. It's just going to be a story you tell. What story do you want to tell? So that contextualizes the tension and the suffering, whatever it might be, and points to a future. And we realize we are writing the story of our life, one decision and one response at a time. What What story story do you want to tell? Yeah. 
Beautiful. All right. I have one more question. And uh, because I'm a parent of a 31, 28, and 25-year-old, and because you're ones, I think you're going to have some insight onto this. Sandra, I don't know if you knew this, but here's how I really found out, I figured out that Andy was a one. We were, or how it was confirmed after our initial conversation, (laughs) we were talking about how he, on Monday morning at around 2 a.m., so it's right after Sunday, would wake up and begin to think about how he could have spoken better during the sermon. I should have had this point, or I could have done that, or maybe it should have been two minutes shorter, or, you know what I'm saying? And I'm like, you know, I don't mean to tell you this, Andy, but no other number does that. (laughs) You know, it's just like, I mean, on a consistent basis anyway, right? So let me just globalize this out into parenting. You know, I'm 62, got these three adult kids, and uh, I periodically do wake up with what I might term parenting regrets. You know what I mean? Like, oh, gosh, I should have done that. And this kid was so different than that kid. I wish I'd done that. And oh, gosh, I hope that didn't hurt too much. And, you know, as ones who tend to struggle with negative, critical self-commentary in the mind running a lot of the time, I just wanted you to ask you, do you ever have parenting regrets? And like that kind of haunts you a little bit. And then have you, how have you (laughs) sort of resolved or not resolved them? Yes. We just talked about one with our yeah, our with, seven. With Garrett. Yeah. But also, I think for me, being a systems person, I mean, I've never met a system I didn't think I could make more efficient. Mm. So I, I think when I aired, especially when our children were young, children just want to play. They just want to be with you. They just want to do whatever you're doing. And that was a real cog in the efficiency wheel of my life because I had, you know, everything in a certain way. One of the things that I realized along the way, and I do think back to this and have regrets, especially now, I wish I had stopped and played more. When they were little, because I was home with them during those years. I wish that I had stopped and played more. I wish that I had not focused so much on efficiency and progress and really redefined what efficiency and progress are in this context yep. of having young children at home. Instead, I had, you know, my timeline and my linear program of how I wanted this day to go. And I, those, that's where my regrets lie when I think back about to those years. So when I look at pictures of our kids and doing this book, we were pulling up all kinds of memories and all kinds of stuff to, to create content. I looked at so many pictures of our kids when they were two, four, and six or any of those training years, those discipline year stages of parenting. And I look at those and I think, where are those, those people? They're gone. We love the adult version of them, but the little ones are gone. And if I could go back and sit down for an hour, I would not be concerned about efficiency or my progress. I would be like, what can I do with these kids? How can I play with these kids? So swirling around in my mind when I am thinking about regrets or what I could have done differently, it just so leans in that direction Mm. of, gosh, I wish that I could reprioritize and think through that. And I got it right some, but you know, my default was always efficiency. And efficiency is the enemy of relationship. You cannot have an efficient relationship. You can have an effective relationship, but effectiveness and efficiency often are in conflict. And when we bring efficiency into relationship, any relationship, right. And again, there has to be efficiencies. I mean, you got, you know, we got to pay the bills and go to work, but we are both kind of wired that way. And um, I feel the same way. I wish I'd just relaxed more 
not worried about the dumb stuff. And funny, funny story related to that. We um, had a different foster child in our home and she had just turned five years old. This is when our kids, Andrew was already in college. Garrett might've been in college by this time. He was, yeah. So we have this foster daughter. She just turned five and she got a brand new pair of roller skates for her birthday. And they hadn't been outside on the concrete. So they were smooth, you know, wheels. And so we were letting her skate in the house. Roller skate in our house. Roller skate on our hardwood floors. Two ones. (laughs) Roller skate on the hardwood floors. Yeah, it was it was like I mean, a that's little. Like, that's like letting a husky up on the couch. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, exactly. One of those shedding dogs. Yeah. yeah. So anyway, Andrew comes in for whatever reason. He came home, and this little girl is skating around, and she and he said, "She's skating in the house. You didn't even let us run in the house." <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and we're like, "Oh well, we can fix the floors later." Yeah. You know, she's banging bump, bumps into the wall. I said, "We're practicing being grandparents. Yeah. We're yeah. we just." But there was a definite contrast because we matured a little bit and you realize a little more. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. You know, I'm going to close up by maybe a word of encouragement for parents and everybody. I just want to remind you, I'm talking to my friends, Andy and Sandra Stanley, about their new book, Parenting, Getting It Right, a book that. Gosh, darn it. I wish I'd had 31 years ago. Anthony, I can see is puddling up because he feels the same way. Um, (laughs) One thing I would say is, you know, I've told my kids this before. When you were born, I was growing up too. Mm. Like I I was a kid in my 20s. I didn't have a manual. I was kind of just doing the best I could with what I had, especially I came from a very troubled family and that made it really difficult. And I felt like I've sort of learned over the years that it's all about progress, not perfection. That I just, you know, I got to get up every morning. I got to put my pants on. I got to put my boots on and focus on the progress, not condemning myself for not being perfect. And then the other thing is what you said, and I'll close on this. If you feel regrets in the moment, just remember, you can heal it with grandkids because (laughs) my, my, I got to say my mom, who's 94 and she's has dementia now, but you know, she was not an awesome mother. I just got to be honest, right? She was not very nurturing. She was gone a lot, but man, she was great with my grandkids. And I have often said to my wife, you know, she wasn't a good mother, but man, she is a great grandma. And that has actually made a lot of healing in our lives together, Mm -hmm. right? So, hey, so you parents out there who got some regrets, just wait until you got grandkids. You got a second chance to maybe make good on it. Well, Andy and Sandra, what a great interview. Authors of the new book, Parenting get it right. I really want everybody to go out and get a copy of this book. It is a slammer. We didn't even have a chance to get into the whole marriage piece of this. So maybe we'll get you back on and talk about that. I just want to say this book could not be more timely or better written. I really mean that. Really, it is so, so clear and wonderful and to the point and really full of wisdom. Andy and Sandra, thanks for being on Typology today. Thanks for having us. Thank you so much. Yeah. Hey, Typology Tribe, remember these words of blessing. May you have love. May you have joy. May you have peace. May you have healing. And may you have rest. Until next time.